0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are talking to Colin Bogar, CEO and Head of Product Development at Property Passbook, in the second week of our two weeks deep dive into China's fascinating housing market. Colin spent three years at Collier's in Shanghai, and we talk about his time there during the financial crisis of 08 and 09 and ask his opinion on why China's housing market slowed starting in 2011. We ask him about how the market has changed in the last five years, key trends he's seeing, and where he believes the market is going. We also dive into to his own company that he started several years ago, Property Passbook, and whether the pandemic has impacted his business and how. Enjoy.
1: The best comparison to where I think China go is going to go is likely Japan. And I don't know if it's five to 10 years, but so what happened in Japan when its economy crashed in the early 90s, Japan already had... Bad demographics which China is very quickly going to have. And so population growth is going to slow. Um, you'll still see some urbanization, but um, you know, the, the replacement, the, the, the birth rate rate is well below replacement now. And China, China, it's very unlikely that China will be a country that people uh, immigrate to in any major number.
0: Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under-30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's Internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Colin welcome to the show thanks for coming on my friend
1: thanks for having me Todd
0: tell us your China story everybody's got something interesting to say about how they ended up in China how did you end up in Shanghai and as a Canadian where did your interest in China begin
1: China was honestly never on my radar in life. Um, like a lot of people end up here, it's, it's kind of one, one experience. When I was doing my master's degree, uh, there was a, a, a four-credit uh, project slash trip to to China, which I, I joined at the, at the last minute because someone canceled two days before it was going to leave. We were in China for two weeks. This was 2007. You know, I was expecting a... a you know, a much more developing country, um, and you know, we on that on that trip we we went to Beijing, uh, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong. You know, it was a lot more developed than I thought it would be, and I could kind of see, uh, you know, I, I could see a life journey there. Uh, I thought that uh, you know, there was a number of things even at that time that. No, to be honest, it didn't make sense as an outside observer or or things that were obviously going to improve. And I thought uh, I, I didn't I didn't move, obviously, instantly. I finished my master's degree and I was thinking about other options, but it kind of became a life option at that point.
0: What year did you go to China for the first time?
1: So, so that was 2007, so, so I was doing my nice. MBA at, at, the, at the Ivy Business School, and then I moved out uh, 2008 um, in, uh, right before the Olympics. So I, I went to Beijing first, and I studied uh, uh, Chinese for a month and a half at Beijing uh, Language Cultural Language University, BCLU, and uh, started looking for a job. Um, nice. and, and then uh, I got a job at, at Collier's uh, in Shanghai. Uh, that's, that's where I wanted to live, even though I'd never been to Shanghai. I kind of, from my research, that's kind of, that seemed like the best option. And, uh, found a job and, uh, started, started the journey.
0: You said that you were at Collier's in Shanghai from 2008 and you were there, I think, until about 2011. Tell us a little bit about what you saw in the real estate market. I mean, tell us, just tell us about being in the real estate market back then, because I remember when I first went to China, I thought I need to be in the crane business. This is incredible. Like, I've never seen more cranes in my life. And I still think that today, like 50 percent of the world's elevators are being installed in China. Tell us what you were seeing in real estate uh, during that time. Uh, both commercial and residential. How did that fit in with the other dynamic trends happening in China at that time, a la technology and, and others?
1: It was interesting. I mean, on the residential side, you know, things always seemed expensive based on kind of the on the on the yield that that owners would get for rent. So rent at that time actually seemed quite reasonable in 2008. I mean, the financial crisis had happened, um, but prices never really ever went down. You know, like people who owned a, a, an apartment or a condo in Shanghai, I mean, they were getting like 1%, 1.5% gross yields then. And, you know, those numbers have kind of stuck as prices have gone up. Rents have gone up with them now, but it's, it's still really low. So it, it, residential is always confusing to, to foreigners. Uh, Shows what we knew, know. Um, cause I know a lot of foreigners, are, we're, we're always waiting for a uh, uh, price correction in Shanghai. These are kind of more longer term residents that, that just never happened. Um, and then on the commercial side, that's when commercial real estate kind of really started to uh, develop beyond kind of the multinationals. Um, so the big thing in 2008 was uh, was was malls, actually. Um, there were there obviously were, were some some decent malls, but uh, the explosion in kind of Chinese consumer spending was about to happen and 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 online retail had not happened yet. So that was the sector that everybody was betting on. And and so even to this day, I know, um you know, I live in the suburbs of Shanghai. And the second biggest mall in the city just opened up by, beside my house. And, you know, building a mall is complicated. And I don't think there's going to be a lot of major malls built, you know, you know, in the next five to 10 years. But we're still kind of seeing the, the, the derivatives or the after effects of all that planning that started kind of in 2008, 2010, 2012, when, when uh, that was kind of the, the asset class that people were most excited about.
0: In the three years that you were at Collier's, the world was in the midst of that, obviously, that huge financial crisis in 2008. What did you see in China? How did they react? How did consumers or purchasers potentially react? Were there real estate investors that potentially were impacted or did they react or retract from the market? What about developers? Can you just kind of lay out maybe a little bit about what you remember the impact of the global economic crisis of two thousand and eight having on on that sector
1: sure um, so China um, you know when it first happened when uh, uh, Lehman Brothers uh, you know went uh, bankrupt and uh, the, the crisis officially started, although it was kind of brewing I think in the kind of eight to 12 months before then with uh, uh, Bear Stearns going under. But actually one of the reasons I went to China is uh, I, I didn't expect a financial crisis per se, but I was I was concerned about the direction of the economy in North America given that Bear Stearns had already gone under um, in I think March of that year. But so anyway, so October 1st around then is when, when, when around when Lehman went under. Um, yeah, there was a, everybody was nervous in China. Um, companies were all cutting costs, uh, cutting headcount. And, uh, you know, the, the Chinese government started, started spending money. Um, and through that stimulus, I think really, uh, you know, that economy bounced back fairly quickly, kind of within three to six months. I think about, after about six months, people were no longer nervous, although there was still kind of a, let's call it a three to six month window when when people were wondering if they were going to have a job. Um, and I think in North America, you know, that was more of a, a kind of a two year process. So, so it reco- uh, recovered a lot quicker there, I remember. Um, now, when it, came, it comes to real estate, I mean, that's one of the ways... You know, China has uh, has famously uh, stimulated their economy, you know, real estate and and infrastructure spending. And 2008 was kind of the moment in the real estate market here where um, the investors switched from from a large part of it being foreign capital to capital to being domestic capital, so money from uh, state-owned enterprises, SOEs, um, you know, institutional investors here. Um, and and a, a lot of the, the, the dynamic in the market really turned local at that point. So not a great time as a foreigner to be coming <laughs> into that industry. I mean, there's still obviously lots of foreign capital. There still is lots of foreign capital. But that was kind of the moment where domestic capital became more important uh, as far as who, who the likely new buyers or investors in commercial real estate was going to be.
0: I mean, it's pretty well documented. I don't remember. I wasn't in real estate, but I, I know and I've read that the real estate market really in China, the tremendous growth period was kind of the 2005 to the 2011 area. Right. But what what is it about 2011? What happened? What was going on? Like there was no macroeconomic event that I can remember from 2011 other than, you know that you know the canada won the 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 gold medal in in at the olympics for hockey in 2010 maybe that had some serious global effects i don't know but what happened in 2011 that just saw this growth slow in the real estate sector in china do you can you point to anything
1: yeah um so on the commercial side uh you know because i'm currently working on a on a project with uh with a financial services company, and uh, it's related to office space, and and you know we we were looking back at the the trend of office space costs over, over the last ten years, starting about 2010, and office space is almost the same price as it was in 2010. Um, so it, it was either really expensive in 2010, or um, or or the, the the new supply that's come onto the market has kind of stagnated any price growth. Um, um, so on, on the commercial side, that's kind of that's kind of the, the the flip side to all the spending on real estate and infrastructure is that there is generally an oversupply of commercial real estate space across the country, including in Shanghai. Um, or or the or the supply is meeting the demand exactly. You could look at it more optimistically like that. Um, on the residential side, uh, when, you know, people talk, to think about real estate price growth, they're, they're primarily thinking about residential. I mean, re- residential started at such a low price point And, uh, in many ways, I think it correlated a lot with the growth in income in China. I mean, it wasn't uncommon, um, you know, in 2000, in the 2000s for wages to go up 10% a year, um, although it's starting at a very low base, um, you know, People used to, now it's, it's not common at all, but at that time it was kind of expected that at Chinese New Year, um, you know, people would get a salary raise, you know, between five to eight uh, percent, even kind of in around 2011. Um, so I think a lot of the residential price mirrored uh, that growth in, in just, you know, uh, wage gains. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> The increase in, in credit has also um, had a big part of that, where it was easier for people to get mortgages. Um, but around 2011 is also when the China Chinese government started realizing uh, this is a little bit of a problem. Houses are getting pretty expensive, and you know, you know, um, there's probably a lot of money going into real estate here that isn't um, isn't for living. And and Xi Jinping today in China, you know, is talks talks about trying to make real estate more for living as opposed to as an investment vehicle. Um, but that, that was all, that was the other thing that happened in 2011. The government really started restricting people buying second houses and other things. And so prices still, still went up uh, since then, but certainly at a, at a lower pace. Hmm. So
0: broadly speaking, uh, maybe over the you know 12 or so years, 13 years that you've, you've been in China, can you, just kind of talk about some of the the changes that you've seen in the real estate market there and i'd I'd really like to tease out some differentiation from you if you can if you can kind of map out first tier and second tier cities versus lower tiered cities when it comes to how things have kind of grown developed and changed and morphed along the way
1: Sure. Um, so, so I mean, the, the the big thing when it comes to, I guess, real estate in general in China, um, and this used to be in the presentations that I used to give. Um, uh, it's it talking about the urban urbanization story there, um, and, and urbanization in China is, I think, different than in, in for example, in Western countries. Um, You know, the countryside in China is generally not a nice place. There's generally not infrastructure. And so nobody really wants to live there. They want to move to cities where there's normal schools and public transportation and, and, and employment opportunities. So I think that rate has gone from... You know, fifty percent to sixty-five percent today. I, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's, it's, it's certainly still well below most developed countries. So you still have a lot of people in China who are, who are living in the countryside. Um, and so, having said that, you get to talking about the difference between kind of the first tier cities and the second tier cities. Um, anecdotally, um, you know, you Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen, in my opinion, are, are kind of the the main first tier cities, uh, with Shenzhen being the city that. That I think uh, grew the most and improved the most over that time. I know I've been to Shenzhen. I was there in 2007, and I was there last year. It blew my mind at how much that place has improved um, to the point where I where I I really think that that's that's easily the second city of China ahead of Beijing. Um, Beijing is still, in my opinion, not that nice of a place to live uh, unless you're kind of young and single and living kind of in the in the cool uh, urban core. Uh, it's not a place you'd want to live in the suburbs, and uh, and and Shenzhen has nicer weather as well. So so you kind of have those three first tier cities. Uh, some of the second tier cities have developed more than others, but a lot of them, honestly, they to me they look exactly the same when I go there now. Uh, with the exception being Shenzhen. Um, part of that is because I think a lot of the development was restricted for whatever reason in the city center, um, in China's kind of urban planning um, system. They, they 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 wanted to avoid uh, overcrowding, um, and so I mean the cities are already fairly dense, but they really uh, encourage these new town developments, you know, buildings in these massive places in the suburbs, which sometimes looks like overcapacity. But in in certainly in the second and third tier cities, they fill up eventually. Um, the the other things that really I've noticed is um, quality improvement. So in residential housing, even just rental residential housing. Um, you know, in 2008, 2010, I mean, and Todd, you probably can speak to this. It was hard to find anything that looked reasonable on the inside. Really, really mm-hmm. challenging. The furniture was awful. The kitchen cabinets were all often multicolored, uh, turquoise or oranges, but it's bizarre would be the mm-hmm. word I would use to describe it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, somewhere in the last kind of three to five years, I mean, you you, you go into Airbnb and you go to Shanghai everything looks exactly like it does in Western countries. You know, like it's like things are just nicer and and, and it's not for the foreigners. It's for the domestic population. Um, People have higher expectations. They've traveled abroad. They know what good design is and, and whatnot. And so that's carried on into real estate as well.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the financing side. I know that you mentioned, you know, what the Lehman Brothers and 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 whatnot, what was going on that drove, you know, because we talked about that that kind of economic macroeconomic event of two thousand eight, and a lot of that was kind of like a mortgage and lending driven. Um, around uh, property. What would you say retail, real estate investors in China typically, uh, how do they approach it? Do they take on debt uh, the, the way they have or the way that, that people still do in other countries? Or how are they kind of debt and servicing this investment? How does that financial you know mechanism work in China?
1: Yeah. Um, so, like... For a long time, uh, property prices were, were you know significantly lower, um, and, and there was kind of just that pent-up savings here. Um, so I'll talk about kind of 10 years ago, and I'll talk about today. Um, 10 years ago, uh, it, it prices were growing at such a rate, and you have to realize there's always rules on how easy it was to buy a property in Shanghai, for example. You had to be a Shanghai resident, or you had to be uh, have your Shanghai resident. Uh, which is your resident residency certificate if you weren't from Shanghai. And so even like, even if you lived in Beijing, you weren't allowed to buy a property in Shanghai. And so a lot of people kind of who, who were able to buy legally uh, kind of felt it was a one way street because the, the real demand was quite a lot higher. So, you know, the debt levels banks felt comfortable lending and um, you know, with their wage growth, you know, it was, it was not that dissimilar from Western countries, you know, today though, um, when I look at the market and I look at the mortgages people are getting on, and this is once again, anecdotally, but I talk to kind of people around, you know, I'm 37. I talk to people around my age about the mortgages they're getting here and and for the kind of the quality of the property and where it's located and what what they earn. And generally speaking, people earn less here than they do in in Western countries. And the properties are more expensive. uh, If you're kind of, let's call it a white collar worker, you know, I I, I would be uh, concerned about taking on one of those mortgages myself, given the fact that wages are not increasing the way they once were. And I, I don't I don't know if property can can, you know, property might go up a little bit, but it's certainly not the, the same uh, dynamics as it was uh, 10 years ago.
0: What are some of the the key trends that you're seeing in real estate in China right now? For instance, are we seeing a move to solar? Are we seeing a move to be more green? What are you seeing both on commercial and, re- and residential side of things?
1: Yeah, so when it comes to to the environment, there's actually a, actually a Canadian guy here named uh, Rayfer Wallace. You know, he has a I don't know, I don't know if a startup's the right word, but certainly a new business. He's an architect. He's got a company here that does, it's less less green, uh, uh, Todd. It's more around health. So, you know, because China, I think, really had and still has serious pollution issues, maybe not so much in Shanghai as it used to. But, you know, if you go to Beijing, Beijing still has serious pollution issues. I think that's really the concern. And and the thing is, with a lot of this stuff, you know, taking care of people's health often is good for the environment as well. Um, and so the concern there is around that um, air quality more so than, than kind of a uh, global warming um, with coronavirus. I think that's only kind of become more prevalent um, and the risk of viruses on, on kind of large building owners, you know, in, in China because coronavirus is, is essentially under control, that's not affecting things, but, you know, in, in, the rest of the world right now, if you own a, a high rise building of any sort, um, that is a, that's a massive losing proposition. People are nervous about getting in elevators. People are nervous about the circulating air. And so in many ways, um, you know, China was kind of ahead of that curve in that they were more concerned about health than, than green. Uh, there, there is a green building standard here. Like a lot of things, uh, Western countries, I don't think, have gotten all of this right you know, people people want to be green and they want to do the right things for global warming, but I think sometimes the solutions are not the most practical. True. I think uh, I think what what I'm what we're seeing in China around um, uh, electric cars is I think a much more practical strategy. Um, and you know, and that's 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 like there's there, I think there's much bigger incentives here to having electric cars certainly in Shanghai than there is in, for in sure. most Western countries. The the one thing I would criticize that I haven't seen change in China much is, you know, they don't. Uh, a lot of China isn't that cold, you know, south of the Yangtze River. They don't have central heating. Uh, so lots of apartments, and you'll speak to this, they don't have central heating and they're not really insulated very well. So that kind of seems I don't, I don't know the exact statistics on that, but that seems uh, not the most environmentally friendly uh, uh, thing. Um, so I, I would hope in the future they, uh, they, they take some steps to improve that.
0: You mentioned an interesting point. I think, uh, for a lot of people who don't live there, the Yangtze or the, the Yellow River, as they call it, um, when they installed everything north of the Yangtze has almost, um, city or, or provincial, uh, heating. So they, they, they have ma- they, they just run radiant, um, pipes throughout all the buildings and then come what is it like november 15th to kind of like april 50 there's that six-month window where they fire up the big coal fire you know boiler factories and the steam factories and they and they just pump boiling hot water throughout every building um throughout all the towns that are are hooked up to it and it just generally heats all of the all of the buildings you don't you don't have control you don't have a thermostat you can't turn it up. You can't turn it down. You can open a window if it's too hot. You can close the window if you want it to be too warm. Um, but then everything below the Yangtze River has none of this. So then that's when you get your, your air conditioners that can blow hot or cold. Uh, that's correct?
1: Uh, yeah, that's correct. And so Shanghai being, you know, right south of the Yangtze River is in that zone where, where you still need heating for, you know, probably two, three to four months. I, I can only imagine that there, there must be a better way of doing this.
0: Yes. And, you know, for those of us who have lived both in the North and the South, and then Shanghai is, is unfortunately caught in a bit of that middle. And I love Shanghai. It's my favorite city to live in by far in, in China. Um, for, for a lot of different reasons, mostly professional, I would say, but it was a really uncomfortable place weather-wise and temperature-wise to live because it gets super hot and muggy in the summer. So you're living in in, a, in heavily uh, air-conditioned buildings and apartments and sometimes that air conditioning blowing you in you all the time. we all walking around with sniffles in the summer because of air conditioning blowing on us all the time. And then in the winter, because we didn't, the bones of our buildings were not heated, we had to blow in warm air all the time. So we were kind of uh, a little bit uncomfortable having to all constantly blow hot air into a room without the bones of the room being warm and we end up being a little bit kind of like dealing with some sickness and always having to bundle up it was just it, it just seemed kind of uncomfortable at both ends of the spectrum
1: it it seems bizarre. And so the place where I live now, Todd, I have I have floor heating, which is essentially radiant heating. Yes. And it's actually it, it it's great, but the funny thing is so like this came included in the building where I live. And so it costs a little bit of money, but honestly, it's the same price as the as the electricity on the air conditioners. Yet I talk to my neighbors and none of them turn it on. Oh. <laughs> right? Really? Like, it's because they have this i don't know there's a perception that it's expensive mm. or whatever i'm sure and so yeah. and so like it's like you know there's these these things about china that uh, that will always be a mystery
0: yeah that is certainly a little bit cultural um where do you see the real estate industry in china going developing in the next five to ten years and it's a bit of a leading question honestly because you know we're we're you know i'm I'm directly looking at the perceived housing bubble is there a bubble what's going on you know the way that china has developed and built their housing industry Is it sustainable? How is this? You know, it's not I don't know if it's going to burst or they're going to be able to take it down and slow it down and and kind of deescalate brick by brick so that it's a comfortable kind of remediation of the of the heat. You know, and there's a lot that goes into how it got there having to do with where do you put money? Are you trying to keep it away from the government's eyes? There's a lack of a stock market and other places to put your money. Can you kind of lay out a little bit and, and unpack that uh, horrible description of that I just gave that is very complicated? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for our audience and then maybe kind of tell us where you think things are going to kind of go in the next five, 10 years?
1: The best comparison to where I think China go is going to go is likely Japan. And I don't know if it's five to 10 years, but so, what happened in Japan when its economy crashed in the early 90s? Japan already had. Bad demographics, which China is very quickly going to have, and so population growth is going to slow. Um, you'll still see some urbanization, but um, you know the the replacement the, the the birth rate rate is well below replacement now, and China, China it's very unlikely that China will be in a country that people uh, immigrate to in any major number. So, what I think is going to happen is, and it's already sort of happening. You know, much like how Tokyo actually continues to grow and and real estate in Tokyo after that initial kind of shock in in 1990 has actually kind of grown slowly with inflation, where the rest of Japan has not, including kind of the second tier cities in Japan. I think you'll see something similar in China uh, in in kind of the next five to 10 years. A city like Shanghai and Shenzhen, probably Hangzhou would be the, the three that I would probably feel most confident about. But a lot of those other second tier cities that still have a ton of new construction happening and adding a ton of new housing and you know people are still moving from you know the countryside close to those, those cities to those cities, it's hard to see how you would see price appreciation in that property given the fact that there's just not gonna be any, peop- any, mm-hmm. any population growth. And so I, I think the example we saw in Japan is going to probably play out exactly the same in China um, with, with those three cities and maybe a couple others being okay while the rest kind of stagnate, which is going to be a problem for people who take out these huge mortgages and and have to deal with them.
0: Has COVID started to impact development, um, Search um, items when people, uh, you know, go into. I know, like in Canada here, we have realtor.ca. I know down south you've got Zillow. Who bought Trulia and you know kind of things like the the search terms, the search items, the the demand for you, you know like a three bed, two bath, whatever. Is that changing? Are people now demanding office? Need two home offices because everybody's on a Zoom and can't share an office at home. Are things is, has COVID impacted or changed things? Because I'm guessing. As I've seen a lot of change, I'm going to be very interested to see the data that comes out from Q3, Q4 as we go into next year and that lag, that lead time that, that, that the world is catching up to the new normal. And I know people hate that term, but what was semi-permanent is becoming permanent. And now companies are saying, you know what, don't even bother coming back. Just stay working from home. And this is just much easier for everybody. So that starts to change the lifestyle. Lifestyle changes start to change how we look and how we want to live and where we live and in what we live and the way that it functions. Have you seen any of that being impacted over in China? Because some of what I'm hearing is that. Things are kind of back to normal, and it's uh, it, it what was semi permanent has stayed semi permanent.
1: We've been working on a consulting project in 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 this space around how companies can think about office space, and you know a lot of that has to do with with reducing commute times as well as saving money, I guess, on, on office costs. Um, one of the big things in 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 all of China um, is that you know, even secondary, secondary cities have eight to 10 subway lines. Right. It's, you know, it's the thing about the country that I think is most impressive and they've done the best on is is their public transportation. Um, And so, I mean, like working from home or, or, or changing the office dynamic, um, you know there, there's a there's a lot more optionality there because uh you know you don't have to go all the way to you know uh there isn't a single downtown there's 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 reasonable office space all over as long as as long as you're connected to a subway um, station and um and so the the thesis that we have is that you know companies will want to save Money and so right now let's just be clear. I think most people are back in the office. I mean ninety percent back because there there is no there is no active uh, virus uh, in the country or very very little of it. Um, And um, you know China obviously deserves a lot of credit for for how they've. um, how they've managed to control the outbreak uh, after it started. I mean, obviously, when it started, that's that's so that's a more complicated issue. But you know, at, you know, a couple months in, you know, they 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 followed, I think, the the, the playbook that other people should be following. Um, and so people are back at work now. Having said that, you know, work from there was a, a large work from home period here. Like everybody who had kids here, they didn't really go back to school last year. So we all we all experienced that as well. Um, and so. Everybody's is, is getting more familiar with, you know, how do you, how do you do these things? I think a lot of companies will want to reduce office costs to be frank, um, you know, office uh, leasing expenses is, is the second biggest cost for most, uh, for most companies. Um, and so if, if all of a sudden that's an option that they can reduce their costs 50% and, and employees are happier, um, you know, I, I do think that will be a trend, although probably to a lesser degree than it will end up being in the West. Um, as far as living, uh, like, you know, having more space, there isn't a lot of great options, unfortunately, Todd. I mean, things are just so expensive everywhere here. Um, and, um, I think, uh, I, I think people would, of course, would like more space, but, but it's already, I think a lot of people are already stretched pretty thin here overall. Um, I think the option, the, the there's some cool stuff going on with, with, you know, the third space ideas and, and um, you know, there's a startup here. A um, you, you probably know him, Dominic Penaloza. Um, so he used to be the head of innovation at WeWork. Um, so he's, um, WeWork China and he's now doing, uh, uh, partnering with some, some kind of, uh, mall operators on, on putting, you know, office spaces and malls that are essentially, you know, yeah. phone booths that people, kind of use like 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 uh, like like the uh, mobikes and so I mean there's there's different solutions that are being tried here and then who knows, who knows what who knows what the answer is going to
0: be yeah, Dominic's been a pretty fantastic entrepreneur. Uh, he, he kind of created Yosher, Yosher.com or Yosher.cn, uh, which was, uh, you know, a competitor to LinkedIn over in China before LinkedIn kind of limped into China. Um, and then yes, I mean, you know, he was doing multiple startups. He went over to be, um, a part of Naked Hub. And then when Naked Hub was acquired by WeWork, he went over to be the CIO over at WeWork. And, uh, I'm saying all of this because we are hunting Dominic and we want to get him on the show, um, as well. And hopefully we get him, um, we can get him soon now that the, all the we work rhetoric has, has kind of calmed down and, and uh, he can talk uh, a little bit more freely. Let's talk to you about your startup, though, um, Property Passbook. Tell us uh, what is Property Passbook? What are you guys doing? What is your mission with Property Passbook? And I mean, full disclosure, I already know all the answers because uh, you were a part of Chat Accelerator uh, back when I was the program director and whatnot. But please do tell for our audience
1: absolutely um, so when we started property passbook uh, the mission was to essentially help uh, normal people uh, invest uh, into cross-border real estate um, especially people that live in markets that are, are too expensive uh, to, to really invest in like uh, like you know basically any major city in the world a lot of people are just priced out and so the other the, the, what our what our kind of view was that you could use data and data, data analytics to help analyze, uh, and we focus on new construction uh, residential, uh, to analyze the new construction residential projects in in different cities uh, and rank them to just kind of help act as a filtering engine for people to to kind of do their own research or to, to work with people from our team. And so we've been doing it for a few years. Um, we've had some success. We raised a little bit of capital. Where we're at in 2020 and as we go into 2021, the area that we had the, the most uh, uh, traction um, was actually in Southeast Asia and uh, specifically around uh, vacation real estate. And so it, it, that's likely the direction we're going to be taking the business, which is focusing on... Southeast Asia uh, vacation real estate for for people that live in, in Asia Pacific and uh, yeah and so that's kind of so that, that that's kind of a little pivot we're working on um, you know most of the people who who buy vacation real estate now with the whole Airbnb ecosystem it's still an investment uh, you know they may use it a little bit but it's it's still I think primarily an investment that they're hoping to generate some cash from.
0: What is it like running your startup? A globally focused startup. What is it like to be running that out of Shanghai? Pros and cons.
1: Pros. I mean, the pros of just living in Shanghai in general, and I think you'll probably speak to this as well. Um, you kind of feel like you have a pulse on the direction the world is going. Um, and, and and even today, I mean, this is obviously going to probably be the the. The craziest, most stressful year of most people's lives, um, and China. You know the, the the conflict between China and the and I don't know if it's conflict between China and the United States, but China and, and Donald Trump. Um, you know that conflict is obviously is, is, is a part of this probably as the secondary issue. You know after coronavirus, and um, it's interesting kind of being here and having a pulse on things and seeing what people are doing and. It's hard not to, to be, to remain yeah. optimistic about China's economic future, let's kind of put it mildly. Um, and um, and so in many ways, I don't know, you can kind of see the future a little bit. And I, I, I've always kind of felt like that living here. Although, you know, living in China, I don't think is the easiest thing to do. Um, you know, there's language, there's language complexities, um, you know, Shanghai. Uh, I, I like living in Shanghai. I've been here a while, my wife is, is Shanghainese. But, you know, it's, it's not the easiest place for foreigners to come uh, and, and kind of uh, set up a life for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, um, but it certainly, I think, gives you a, pers- a good perspective on, on where the world is going.
0: For sure. And you're right. I will comment to that. I think it's amazing. I have never felt more aware and felt like I understood better the way a lot of different areas of the world Think how they think and feel than when I was living in Shanghai, because Shanghai and maybe you can comment to this a little bit. I felt like Shanghai was almost an island of just pure metropolitan, cosmopolitan diversity accru- from from every area of the world all living there it happened to be owned and operated by the chinese but i don't know if it was necessarily chinese like if you want to experience china i don't recommend shanghai to be the city you go and live in because i don't think that's truly experiencing china
1: you'll get a you'll get a big misperception of of what china actually is
0: you will you will but if you really want to go to one place That to me is probably one of the most multicultural places in the world. And you want to hang out and get to know people from all different areas of the world who are generally kind of smart, swashbuckling, curious, entrepreneurial types anyway, who have, you know, leapt over borders and oceans to be there. Um, It's it's amazing for that. Um, I have felt that my understanding and knowledge of places in Europe or Africa or, or, or similar has kind of slipped away a little bit as I've left because I just don't have the same kind of touch points and familiarity and, and congeniality with, with, with people from, from all the other areas in the world that I used to have while I was there. And I felt just that was that's something that I really miss now that I'm not there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, you know, when I, when I think about my own kind of life plan um, you know, that's the thing I know I'm going to miss uh, if I go somewhere else, because it's, it, it is really a unique city where honestly it just keeps you sharp. And um, um so, so in many ways, I think that's been the positives um, I think tactically speaking, running a business, it's interesting. I mean, there, there's a lot of talent here now. I mean, a lot of people uh, are, are bilingual. If you're if you're in a business that targets, um, you know, uh, China as well as, as overseas, uh, the technical talent here is pretty good. Um, it's a little bit more expensive than than than, than certainly other places, um, although. If you go to kind of some second-tier second tier cities in China, uh, the costs go down a lot. I don't know if you necessarily want to live in, in those cities. Uh, if you're a foreigner, they're not going to be this cosmopolitan uh, interesting experience. They're going to be kind of a, a rather drab experience. One of the things that's interesting on that is, is, is kind of Chinese people in, in their 20s who want to go have an experience. I mean, Shanghai is really the only option for them. Mm-hmm. You know, Shenzhen, there's stuff happening in Shenzhen. Uh, you know, Beijing has some merits, but I mean… the other cities in China really lack personality. And I I don't, I think that's, that's not an overstatement. Like they really lack personality and um, um, people who want to experience something in their life, young Chinese people. I mean, this is, this is really the main option for them um, to, to do that.
0: How has, if at all the last year with regards to COVID and no travel and then travel and markets, I mean, how has this affected property passbook?
1: Um, you know, we had a great January (laughs) and then, uh, (laughs) and then, uh, and then we started, I was supposed to go to Hong Kong and I was supposed to go to Hong Kong, I think January 27th with my family. And, uh, you know, you're, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on actually. Um, as the stories come out of Wuhan and, um, you know, I actually went down to, to Thailand with my family for about a month and a half. Um, while wow, wow. we were watching things play out? Yeah, so for, from a business perspective, I mean, we were already looking to Southeast Asia. Obviously, not a lot of international travel happening this year, so not great for our business. But I think in in, in many ways, um, and I think a lot of other entrepreneurs will, or, or even any business owners will speak of this, you know, I think th- there, there was a lot of come-to-Jesus moments this year for people where where they kind of recognized, you know, something – was right or it wasn't right or i need to fix these things and, and and so that was kind of our story i mean we're 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 still in business i mean i i set up a, a company uh, an office in thailand this year uh virtually so speak speaking of you know running businesses virtually i i've hired hired six or seven people there and um and so you know we're, we're all just kind of doing what we need to do you know we're excited about the the, the developments and the vaccines i think travel is going to bounce back in ways that people can't imagine you know once once people i think there's 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 a lot of pent up um i don't know i don't know what the right word is but pent up uh like we, we see it because we see all the 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 people inquiring uh from, from all over the world wanting to travel to thailand all the time and uh like people people are just getting uh homes um restless at home and so it it could be like the 1920s you know where people are just after this is over that everyone's just going to enjoy their life much much more fuller than they did before
0: it's cabin fever man
1: cabin, cabin fever f- there you go
0: there you yeah. go yeah i mean everybody is just like i need to get out I need to go like uh, I'm I've got a uh, I've got a place um, up at Silver Star reserved for over the holidays. It's 20 minutes from my house and you have no idea how much I'm looking forward to going <laughs> and staying in somebody else's house for 20, you know, 20 minutes away uh, up at the ski hill. Um, and that's that's about as, as good as we've got over here. So you're you're right. You're absolutely right.
1: Well, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, although it's under control in China and it's under control in, let's say, Thailand and some other places, I can't, I can't leave the country though right now, right?
0: Not if you want to come back in.
1: Not if you want to come back in. So, as as a foreigner, this is this is really not convenient, right? Where it's like, no, when am I going to be able to see my parents again? When am I going to be travel abroad again? And so.
0: Quarantine sounds awful for the yeah. people that I know that have gone through it. Uh, we just released an episode with the CEO of WPIC Marketing Technologies, Jacob Cook. And I know he had to go through the 14 days. Uh, you know, our friend Richard Robinson just came back in. A lot of people have had to go through and do it. And wow, that just sounds not enjoyable whatsoever. Just, uh, not something I want to go through. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people still need to do it. So, uh, kudos to them and and (laughs) how,
1: uh,
0: last question here. I mean, I want to go back to the overall topic here and talk a little bit about, um, real estate planning, especially from a construction point of view. You know, I mentioned early on about, you know, wanting to be in the crane business when we get there, but, has anything about covid and the pandemic life that we all live in now has it changed the way real estate planning is being done because you you hinted towards a little bit about what dominic is doing with almost putting these these kind of mobile mobile type of of little office uh, uh you know a little um what do you call it? The telephone booths of people to be able to work in, in malls and things like that. I mean, we're having to almost reimagine a lot of current real estate infrastructure into what it could be uh, and how it can be back, like reintegrated back into a new style of 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 social and and professional living. Um, and then, where does this leave construction? And where does this leave construction investment? finance like financing vehicles um can you you know close us out a little bit just kind of looking at you know the 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 construction the investment the planning the financial vehicles are mega cities even still a thing you know let's close it out with that
1: so i mean i I personally um think that 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 people still want to live in people still want to interact with cities I don't think there's going to be, I think work from home is going to be something that's going to be real. And I think it's, you know, I think it's a positive thing. I, I, people won't feel as pressured to, I guess, live in cities, especially with families and, and whatnot. I mean, when you're young and single, that's that's one thing, but, you know, as you get older and you need more space and you want to have children, um, you want to be able to kind of uh, uh, live a, live a certain lifestyle. Um, so I, I, in many ways, that might be a positive that comes out of this that um it's easier for people to do family planning because it's more acceptable to not have to commute every day. Um, just specifically about about construction changes in the different asset classes of real estate. Um, you know, the one sector that is it continues to get lots of investment um, is logistics. Um, so obviously online sales um, are, are booming. Um, so, I mean, that's that's, you know, just another nail in the coffin of, of retail real estate, which which has been playing out for you know, seven to seven to eight years already. Um, office spaces. I do think that um, that buildings are going to have to have better, you know, health systems. I guess to, to track um, to track things like um, to give people confidence. I guess that viruses are not active in, in, in the building systems. Um, I also think that um there's gonna be some changes in in, in in probably the size of office buildings. Uh there's there's obviously less incentive to, to build super towers now, given that I don't I don't think people are gonna pay the same premiums they once did. Um for residential in China, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of change in residential because the the positive of not having central building systems is you don't have central building systems when there's an active virus. Um so in many ways these uh, concrete I actually think it's one of the reasons why <clears throat> coronavirus uh, didn't have the, the the didn't spread as quickly uh, across Asia because uh, this is the way apartment buildings are built here is is they're not there's not a central building system so everybody's kind of in their own concrete box and uh, and you know that's that's good when there's a pandemic going on um, so I think a lot of the changes are are going to if anything just accelerate uh, a trend that were already existing in China anyways.
0: Colin Bogart, thank you very, very much, buddy, for coming on the show and talking to us a lot about real estate sector, where we came from, what it's like in China and all the insights that you had uh, with regards to all your time there. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you, your family and to Property Passbook uh, going forward.
1: Thanks for having me, Todd.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China.